episode, we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 17, where we embark on a journey alongside the Apostle Paul as he ventures into the heart of Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, facing a mix of skepticism and not a little intrigue. In Thessalonica, the message of the resurrected Jesus stirs the city to its core. In Berea, the noble-hearted residents eagerly search the scriptures to confirm Paul's teaching. But it's the cultural epicenter of Athens where Paul's passion for the gospel shines as he addresses a crowd of thinkers at the Areopagus. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Thursday, August 17th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word thrives thanks to listeners like you whose prayers and contributions support KFUO's radio ministry. But I'm also very grateful to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, our sponsor. They translate, publish, and distribute Christ-centered materials around the world. Explore LHF's impactful work and learn how they can help you out at lhfmissions.org. Well, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning. It's the Reverend Derek Waffle. He's the pastor of Christ Lutheran Church in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Good morning, Pastor Waffle, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Good morning. Now, I understand that you have been a guest on Thy Strong Word before back in the day, but since it's your very first time being a guest since I've been the host, I'd like to invite you to just take a few moments, share with the folks at home and me a little bit about who you are, what your congregation's like, and how God is working through you. I'd love to. Uh, I am in Pascagoula, Mississippi, which uh, if you hear that and you think, where is that? Then you know exactly how I felt on call day. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I have been here in Pascagoula for eight years now, my first call out of the seminary. And uh, it is a absolutely delightful congregation. Uh, you know, it's very... Uh, uh, very close-knit, loving people who have always just ta uh, taken wonderful care of me and my family, uh, married with three children, and uh, living right here on the Gulf Coast. Well, I think that's great. I, uh, I've been to Mississippi several times. I don't think I've made it there, uh, but I've certainly heard of Pascagoula. Um, maybe just uh, growing up down south, maybe I'm a little closer to it than some. Um, glad to hear that uh, this is your first call, but that you've been there for you know quite a bit of time now. A lot of guys sort of shed their first call within the first few years. It's an unfortunate nature of how our system sometimes mm -hmm. works, but it's wonderful that you uh, continue to do the Lord's work down there in Mississippi. You have a wife, kids. I, I think I missed that part. Yes, yes. Married with three kids. Ah, nice. uh, they are ages eight, uh, almost six, and almost two, so... Oh, well, um, you got your hands full then. <laughs> yes. Whenever anyone asks what kind of hobbies I have, I just say, did you not hear the part about three young kids? So. <laughs> That's right. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm glad that you have carved out out of your precious schedule some time for us today to talk about the book of Acts chapter 17, which uh, I, I think the highlight is Paul in Athens at the Areopagus. But, you know, he makes a few stops before we get there. Uh, but before we even get into it, would you begin our time together with prayer, brother? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, may we take, uh, take a lesson from the saints who came before us, especially the saints at Berea, that we too would daily examine the scriptures and find there Christ for us in all of his grace, which receives, which is received by us, by the faith created in us by the Holy Spirit, and in him find eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, all that you would dearly love to give to us. As we rejoice in your grace and examine the scriptures together today, bless us with that Holy Spirit, that it may be a time of benefit for us and for all who listen. In your son's name, amen. Amen. Well, let's. Uh, there's really nothing to do it except to dive in, unless, of course, you want to maybe catch people up just a little bit, give a foundation for where we're going. Like, you know, if they missed the episode yesterday, <laughs> where has Paul been? How have we gotten to where we're going to get today? I think that makes sense. Yeah. Well, 
of the the book of Acts, uh, following you know chapter uh, eleven, you know starting with chapter eleven or so, is uh, the the many adventures of Paul and company. Uh, so the uh, uh, travels across the Mediterranean world. Uh, the the gospel has uh, here arrived in Europe, uh, crossing over into Greece and Macedonia and. Uh, uh, Paul and his companions. Uh, certainly, uh, we don't want to forget that he is doing this mission work with Timothy and Silas and Luke and a number of others. Uh, I know we, we make it the Paul show a little bit too much, but yes, there's many other uh, faithful uh, men and women who are working alongside him. So uh, continuing on, uh, he follows the pattern here that he has followed in many other places. He goes first to the synagogue uh, to to begin preaching to those who have that uh, biblical Old Testament foundation first. But uh, uh, the instance right before this is uh, Paul and Silas in jail when uh, the earthquake comes and they are, uh, you know, the, the chains fall off, the, uh, the, the prison doors are, are flung open, and uh, as uh, the jailer is just about to despair, uh, that all his all, all the prisoners under his care have escaped. They say, you know, they nope, we're all here. And the 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 jailer and his family come to faith. Uh, so coming from that, they have, have just uh, been released and moving on to the next stop. And the next stop is here in uh, Thessalonica. That's right. Um, the end of our lesson from yesterday was the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. They took them out, asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And that is where we're going to pick up today. I'm going to go ahead and read 17, 1 through 9. Makes sense. Let's do that. Here we go. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. All right, that's the end of verse 9. So, yeah, he's passing through a couple of uh, hard-to-pronounce cities, and he comes to Thessalonica. <laughs> um, Amphipolis and Apollonia, Apollonia um, obviously named for Apollos. Uh, but they come to the synagogue of the Jews. Now, it's interesting to me uh, that Paul, and I, I think people sometimes forget this. First of all, before we even talk about that, though, I have to address the uh, many adventures of Paul and company. I like that, I like that as an uh, alternative <laughs> title to the book of Acts. Uh, but as you rightly pointed out, there's so many other people involved besides St. Paul. Uh, and so we're going to hear, we're going to see people like this Jason guy, whoever talks about Jason, but here he is getting caught up in the rabble. But anyway, uh, Paul goes in and he's, he's going to the synagogues, right? This is where he's going to proclaim the Christ. Um, that's not the type of missionary work that we typically think of today. Like we wouldn't uh, land in an area and then go to all the false teaching churches and tell them about Jesus. Um, or maybe we should, I don't know, but that's what Paul is doing. So no wonder he's getting in so much trouble. Well, I, I don't want to jump too far ahead of past this section, but this chapter gives us two different approaches. One is how do you connect with people who have some previous knowledge? Like we said, with the uh, those who are here in the synagogue, both the Jews and apparently 
a significant number of uh, Gentile, uh, what, what they will call the God-fearing Gentiles, you know, those who are attending the synagogue, even though they haven't fully converted to Judaism, uh, they have this previous connection, and he, they already accept the authority of Scripture, so Paul can start there. You know, he doesn't have to prove anything to them about the Old Testament. He can use that to show, well, look, Jesus is the Messiah, because look at all of these uh, 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 prophecies that he fits. A little later on, we're going to get his visit to Athens, and that is you know, a much different situation. How do you connect with these people who don't have that baseline? Which, uh, there are certainly uh, many parts of our nation where uh, pastors seeking to do evangelism and outreach in those areas are increasingly running into that. Uh, people who don't have even a surface level of knowledge about the Christian faith. And you know, perhaps in that sense, uh, we are more and more like Paul uh, in, in Athens versus Paul in Thessalonica. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I was just talking about this the other day. I don't know if it was on the show or with my Bible study crew or just talking to my wife. It all runs together <laughs> nowadays. I talk about this stuff so much, I don't even remember where I say things. But here's what I was saying, and I think you'll agree. I do believe that American Christians, all, all Christians, let's be honest, um, aren't as familiar with the Old Testament as we should be, myself completely included. Certainly. I mean, so there's a part of it that makes a lot of not only logical sense, but makes it a little easier because he doesn't have to start with there is a God. He doesn't have to start with there is only one God. He doesn't have to start with here are commandments and here's what the sacrifices meant so it can build up to the necessity of the Messiah coming. He doesn't have to start there. And in, in the course, in these last days, we have to start at the very beginning with folks. Yep. And ironically, the, the Judaizers, the circumcision party who's saying things like, well, these Christians, these new Greek Christians should become Jews before they become Christians. Well, we kind of, in a little little way, have to make people Jews before we <laughs> turn to Christ. <laughs> now, the Holy Spirit does the work. It's not our convincing. But still, we want to go out there, and it's hard for us to proclaim the Messiah has come, and it's Christ, if they have no clue what a Messiah is, or right. what it means that he came, or where he came from. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a, it's fascinating and I see us, as you said, getting much more regressive. I think we're getting closer and closer to the way it was with Paul in the first century in Rome, um, and we can learn a lot from his journeys. And of course, the uh, reassurance there is it's nothing the church hasn't had to uh, face before. <laughs> right, exactly. Nothing new. Nothing new under the sun, I'm afraid. Well, he's going to these synagogues, and I love this text. He's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he's doing this, of course, from what we call the Old Testament, only scriptures they had. And so he proclaims Christ as, I'm sorry, Jesus as the Christ, um, and it convinced some people. I, I should say it convinced them. It says persuaded, but we know the Holy Spirit's the one doing the work. Mm -hmm. and, and some of them joined Paul and Silas. Um, but then it says the Jews were jealous. Now, Jews here, of course, will be those who... Um, the religious leaders, right, and some others under their influence, mm -hmm. not just any random Jew. Right. But I notice how the Jews, who really should not have the most and did not have the most favorable opinion of the authorities, sure like using the authorities to their own <laughs> means whenever they get the chance. Haven't you noticed that from Jesus oh, till now? You know, and I just uh, just looking at it now, I see the echoes of what happens with Jesus in Jerusalem here. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, here they are under the oppression of this government, and yet anytime they can run to Caesar and say, hey, somebody's doing something wrong, they're saying there's a king besides you, Caesar, and of course, that's a serious crime to declare that there's another king besides Caesar, because the Romans feared that. And this is pretty much, you're right, what Jesus was condemned Just like for. in Holy Week, we have no king yeah. but Caesar. That's right. It's, it's just a, an amazing kind of, um, I guess, amazing kind of environment in which you have people who are 
running to the authorities to use government against the opinions of people they don't like. There's probably nothing for us to uh, commiserate with uh, there. <laughs> no, there? No, no, it's, you know, it's a shame these these texts don't have any relevance to modern uh, society or anything like that, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And, and that is the shame. Yeah, as you said, things are coming back around. Well, and then they go to this guy named Jason's house. I suppose this is where Paul is staying, but tell us what you know about Jason. I don't know much else about Jason. Uh, I, no, there's I not to, much else. Yeah, I have to... Uh, conclude from the context that he is uh, 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 some leader within the synagogue. Uh, Jason would be a Greek name as far as I know, so either he is a fairly Hellenized Jewish man living there, or could even be one of the uh, uh, the Gentile uh, God-fearers, uh, but uh, seems to be, you know, the, the person that Paul was staying with, right? Right, and we don't hear much about Jason anywhere else, and by not much, I mean he only shows up, <laughs> if it's the same one, in one other place, and that's Romans 16, verse 21. Yep. He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, so do Lucius and Jason. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we have Jason popping up, but the reason why I think Jason, though we don't know anything about him, is worth just dwelling on just for a moment, is that how many other Jasons are there, right? How yeah. many other... <laughs> Uh, Jews and Christian. Uh, well, this is probably a believer at this point. But how many faithful men and women are out there helping the mission go forward, helping Paul go and proclaim Christ, getting their rear ends dragged out of their houses, <laughs> um, and yet we don't know about them. But the good news is, and the, and the fact that Jason's name is here in Scripture, I think, is a nice reminder that that even if we don't know a lot about them, this is this is proof that God remembers them. Yeah. God knows. The, the sacrifices and the contributions that people make. Absolutely. Well, the uh, people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, <laughs> but it's nothing that a little money can't fix. Uh, <laughs> verse 9, when they'd taken money as a security and right. Jason and the rest. It sounds, I mean, it sounds to me like they're asking Jason to pay Paul's bail. You know, <laughs> he's putting up the security money like, all right, fine, I'll... I'm going to do my best to keep this Paul character from causing too much uproar. So, you know, I'll pay the bail for him. Let's get him out of here. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I guess I've never really thought deeply about what the security actually was, but I suppose that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, looking real quick, uh, very quick at the... Just looking at the the Greek here. Mm-hmm. No, it just seems to mean that. So I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, we we have all of this. Uh, not only is this what happened to Jesus, but this isn't the first time it's happened to Paul either. It happened in Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. Um, the jealousy of these local Jews yeah. are compelling Paul, uh, pray, sorry, compelling them to oppose Paul, and of course the movement of the early church. I think that's a fascinating. That's another fascinating aspect of as Christ comes and people reject him, then they get jealous that his disciples mm-hmm. are flourishing in the, yeah. at this time in, in history, doing miracles, proclaiming the gospel. Instead of being jealous, why not just join, right? People react very strongly to Paul and to the message he's preaching wherever he goes uh, that, uh, uh, you know, you could speculate on Paul's personality and in, in the communication of the message, but the truth is that's exactly what the word does. And, you know, and Jesus says the same thing that the, uh, uh, came not to, uh, to bring peace, but a sword that, uh, there is this division that is caused when some believe and some don't. Well, having been driven out of Thessalonica, Paul is now going to head on to Berea. I think he's going to get a different welcome there. Let's read verses no. 10 through 15. Oh, can ahead. I have one more thing about Thessalonica before you we move You can on. add as <laughs> much as you want about Thessalonica. All right. So I am not the greatest Greek scholar in the world. I, I, rely, I stand on the shoulders of giants, so to speak. But uh, one uh, one thing that jumped out to me as I was looking at this part, when they say the they have turned the world upside down, uh, the word that they use... Uh, not to overload your listeners with too much Greek, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not the planet Earth, the uh, the cosmos, uh, the universe. It's uh, it's a uh, ecumene, the the civilization, uh, which I think is a an interesting counterpoint. You know, the Greeks had very negative views about the barbarians. 
uh, that uh, the Greeks are the, the center of civilization in their mind and everyone else is just some barbarians. And the, the Greek ecumene, the Greek civilization, that these, uh, you know, what, what you're bringing in here is disturbing and disrupting what we consider to be the way the world works. Uh, I mean, that that is pretty perceptive uh, in a sense of what the Christian faith really does do when it comes into these uh, uh, these worldly uh, ideologies. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm I'm looking at the Greek word here too, and yeah, sometimes it's used as earth, as you as you mentioned, but um, this inhabited world, or even in some specific uses, the word is used specifically for the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. especially the inhabited parts. The point being, as you said, I think a better translation might be society. Mm-hmm. Uh, wouldn't you agree? Like these men have turned yeah. society Absolutely. upside down, yeah. and really, is that not the same argument we're getting today? Yeah. Right? Christians are so backwards; they're undoing all the progress, or they want to do all the progress. Or everybody knows that it doesn't matter who you marry; love is love. Everybody knows that um, there is uh, life; it doesn't happen until it's the baby's born or a mother decides. Everybody, you know, so they're worried yeah. that Christianity is going to come in and undo all the so-called progress that society has made. The Greeks viewed themselves as very sophisticated and, uh, you know, cosmopolitan cultured. And yeah, the Christian faith comes in and, and it tells them, as Paul says in first Corinthians, uh, uh, the, your wisdom, the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's eyes. So yeah, I think they, uh, you know, they take the wrong side, but in a sense they are, they do have a clear view of how the Christian faith really does turn upside down all the ways of the world. And thank God it does. Anything else about this first section from Thessalonica before we move on? No, I'll let you move on now. (laughs) All right, here we go. Uh, Verses 10 through 15. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, not with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So a couple things stand out to me, not the least of which is um, the Jews in Thessalonica upset that basically the Berean Jews aren't aren't upset. They just <laughs> can't down. leave it alone. No, right? It's like... <laughs> Listen, you wanted the guy out of your town. You ran him out. Poor Jason's on the hook as this guy's on the lamb, maybe. <laughs> but 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 now you what you want to come down here? I mean, I think that's interesting too. It's not enough. It's not enough that they don't have to hear the message. They don't want other people to hear it either. Echoes of uh, Paul himself, in fact. Uh, he is, uh, you know, when he is uh, confronted by. Jesus appearing to him, he is on his way from Jerusalem all the way up to Damascus to go after the Christians there. So, uh, you know, it's the uh, the same kind of fervor that he himself showed before his, uh, his, you know, I always say he got knocked off his horse, his divine conversion to faith. Do you think Paul, as he's experiencing these hardships, I mean, he has to, part of him for sure, and I think we actually see this in his writings, but he has to understand that he has to make the connections to what he was doing when he was persecuting Christians. Part of him has to be like, even though I'm forgiven, mm-hmm. I really deserve mm-hmm. what's happening. And that, I wonder if that's part of his psychology. That's got to be part of his passion for reaching out to the synagogues in each of these towns, even when they respond like this, because, yeah, you know, uh, there but for the grace of God go I. Right, right. Well, we all we often talk about the Berean Christians because of this very passage. Uh, we encourage our people to be like the Bereans. We encourage others to be like the Bereans. Uh, what is it about the Bereans <laughs> that we want people to aspire to? Right. Uh, 
examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Yep. Check, uh, uh, check the message against the word. Uh, you know, I have uh, told people here in sermons and in Bible class multiple times that uh, if, if I say something and for whatever reason it doesn't sound right to them, ask me where in the Bible that is. Uh, and I should be able to point, it, point you to it. If I can't point it to you, then, well, I probably shouldn't be saying it. And by the same token, if I can point you to it and you still don't really like it, well, it's not me you don't like. It's You're right. God's word. And, you know, that sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit can provoke us in ways like that, too, to challenge us to to uh, be ever more uh, conformed to uh, to the uh, the standard of teaching that we find there. Yeah, so I the Bereans are open minded. Awesome. Noble, you know, this noble is the way it's translated here, but I would rather translate it, you know, open-minded. They are not, they are not predisposed or pre-prejudiced against the Christian faith. So they, they go to the word of God and examine the scriptures and check out what Paul's saying. Yeah, originally the Greek word there um, was talking about people who belong to a particular um uh, you know, uh, a particular noble class of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it had, it later, as language does, had tr- had sort of changed to mean uh, open-minded. Um, so people who were more refined, you know, that's right. some of the connotation you're getting from the noble class. So if it means, if, if it once meant that you were born wealthy or born into a particular status, here it just means these are good people. These yeah. are quality people. <laughs> they're, they're people who have open minds about things. Um, and interestingly enough, even though we encourage our parishioners to be like the Berean, have a Berean spirit, search the scriptures, keep me on track, the truth is these aren't Christians yet. These right. are actually Jews who are... So really a better analogy would be we hope that when we go out into the world to unbelievers or differently believing people and we proclaim Christ to them, that they will go to the scriptures. But of course, Absolutely. the difference is here, they actually believe the scriptures. And out in our world today, as we've discussed earlier, we, we, we're starting from scratch. You know, they're not going to do that because they don't, the scriptures hold no authority for them. But, uh, yep. I don't, uh, I don't know much, what else there is to say about the Bereans. They provide us a good example in a very short, uh, <laughs> short space here. They do. They do. Um, so well, just is... a couple, yeah, just a couple of things as we finish up this, this passage and head into a break. Um, so the Jews from Thessalonica, they take this, uh, Thessalonica for what it's worth is about 45 miles away from Berea. It's a three day journey by foot. So these guys are, are huffing it three days <laughs> to go and agitate and stir up the crowds. Um, And so the brothers immediately send Paul off on his way, but Silas and Timothy remain there. And that's going to be key, too, to the proclamation of the gospel there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul moves on, but they stay behind, and they they, they see, uh, I guess, an opportunity for for ministry. Yeah. Yeah, Paul is, uh, uh, he he was evidently, you know, a, a very... Like a very, very powerful personality. I don't know how else to describe him. You know, he he goes in, he makes a splash in these cities, and uh, but then there are these others, whether it's Paul and Timothy who are traveling with him, or uh, other Christians who, or you know people who have come to faith in those communities. That you know, ministry is continuing there even after Paul leaves. In a oh gosh, I so I, I'm from the south, and so I can't help but sometimes make these connections. But um, aside from theology, maybe, it reminds me a little bit of Billy Graham and his crusades, right? Mm-hmm. Billy Graham, despite his Arminian uh, perspective, wanting to people to give their hearts mm-hmm. to Jesus and that sort of stuff, still he would go from town to town, cause a big stir, but then his message was always, now go and find, go and find a Bible-believing yep. church. Go and find a pastor, a congregation to connect yourself with. And so that's very much what Paul is doing, except the difference here is, He's having to start those congregations. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly right. Well, I'll tell you what, we're right here at our break. So, folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Waffle and I will pick back up where we return. We will see you on the other side.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me is the Reverend Derek Waffle, pastor of Christ Lutheran Church in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Folks, over the air, as a podcast, online at kfuo.org, or using the KFUO app, no matter how you're connected with us this morning, I'm so glad you're here. And if you have thoughts or questions about the show, you know you can reach me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Make sure you spell it right, P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. You can find me at Facebook too, Pastor Boo. Well, uh, Pastor Waffle, now that we're back, by the way, I haven't had breakfast this morning, and every time I say Pastor Waffle, it makes me hungry. Uh, you said off the air that... You said off the air that waffle uh, means just what it sounds like in German. Yeah, it is a German name, waffle, but uh, waffle. sadly the meaning is not much different. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I tell you what, why don't we um, head back into the text? Is there anything that you'd like to say before we move on to Paul in Athens? Oh, let's get to Athens. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? And others said, Oh, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him, and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. We're going to pause there at the end of 21. Paul heads to Athens. He's, he's waiting for uh, folks to catch up, and he's looking around. And the city is full of idols. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Luther visiting Rome and being yes, it incredibly yeah. <laughs> disappointed with just um, how uh, uh, how awful it is. Yes, that that word there. His spirit was provoked within him. Uh, again, I, I took a look at uh, uh, that word, and you know, it's a this sense of irritation. Uh, yeah, I'm right here on the Gulf Coast, and we have. Uh, uh, an oyster farm over near Biloxi, not too far from here. And the, the image that came to my mind was almost like the way a grain of sand gets into an oyster and it irritates it. But what does that irritation produce? It produces a pearl uh, that, uh, uh, you know, just as Luther himself talked about uh, uh, tentatio, the, this uh, uh, sort of spiritual uh, affliction that produces growth in faith. Uh, I think with Paul... Uh, you know, he is, he is provoked uh, uh, by these idols. He's irritated by them. And that, uh, that irritation, that little grain of sand uh, uh, rubbing on him and scratching at him produces outreach, evangelism. Yeah, I'm looking here in a little dictionary that I have for these Greek words. And it says here, unfortunately, it doesn't say in what languages, but it says, in some languages, the expression to be greatly upset must be rendered idiomatically as, and he gives two examples, his heart was eating him or his stomach was hot. Now, I don't know what languages those <laughs> come from, but I, but I get the idea. It's that feeling when just something within you is uneasy and, and, and you know, like your heart burns or yep. your stomach uh, butterflies, something's chewing in your stomach. His spirit was provoked. So when he goes into this town, he's... What is the word? I mean, obviously provoked is the word, but it's not like even disgusted. It's almost like a mix between anger and sadness and a desire to help them, but also disgust. Um, 
and this is something that would have probably provoked Paul even when he was still persecuting Christians, to be right. honest, because <laughs> a city full of idols is not consistent with Jewish or Christian teaching. Yeah, it's um, someone, you know, someone has to do something. I, I, I get that. Ah, that's Paul. That's, that's what's happening in Paul's mind. Someone, you know, I can't just stand by idly. Someone has idly with the idols, right? <laughs> I Very unintentional. I apologize for the bad. Pun, love but, it. Uh, love it. <laughs> Well, you're right. Somebody has to do something because in verse 17, it says, so he reasoned. So this provoked him to, to action. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul's not just going to the synagogues. He's hanging out where even the idol worshipers are and proclaiming the truth of Christ. Paul's all over the place. He's not sticking his evangelism isn't by just inviting people to come hear him or inviting people to come to synagogue. Um, just like our evangelism mustn't be just saying, right. hey, come join me at church. He's going out where the people are and uh, and proclaiming the Christ. Mm -hmm. So who does he run into then, I guess? It must be at this marketplace <laughs> where he runs into some of these folks who start calling him babblers and a preacher of foreign divinities, uh, oh. both of which are probably technically true. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all the philosophers, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, uh, which is uh, interesting because in, in the Greek, Greco-Roman mindset, philosophy and religion were not necessarily the same thing. Uh, they're not nearly so connected as uh, 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 we might view them today. Uh, questions of like morality and human behavior were much more for the philosophers. The the priests and the the, the temples were all about the sacrifices. Uh, you know, we have to appease these gods to make sure that they don't. You know, that bad things don't come to us because we didn't appease them. Uh, there so really wasn't a lot of, to think about or ponder on with the ancient religions. Very little. They're very practical in the sense that it's all about the results you get. It's not very theoretical. And, you know, what do you want to believe about all these Olympian gods? You know, those are the questions for the philosophers. Uh, but we've got these Epicureans and Stoics, uh, these two big philosophical schools. Uh, and I think in both of them, you can see... Uh, strains of thought that are very much still with us today. Uh, you want to give a, a very brief rundown on those, or uh, do you want me to yeah, do I'd, that? <laughs> no, I'd love to hear that. So All right. How, how do we uh, see that's going on today? Well, Epicureans have been kind of uh, misunderstood in later centuries as just hedonists. You know, they're all about pleasure. They're just, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, this this life is what there is. The material world around us is reality, and therefore, enjoy life while you got it. Uh, but it, it was, it was about pleasure, but it was also uh, about uh, well, Epicurus himself. Uh, he, I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, read read from him. He says, "By pleasure, we mean the absence of pain in the body and of trouble in the soul, not unbroken, uh, you know." drinking bouts and revelry and so forth, but, uh, you know, avoiding uh, conflict, avoiding stress, avoiding uh, difficult things. It's, uh, you know, the always looking for the path of least resistance in that sense. Uh, again, plenty of people out there today who would yeah, that's, go through that's... life with that in mind. I mean, that's basically the the nature of uh, of our entire culture today. Talking mm -hmm. about turning culture upside down. I mean, if Christianity requires sacrifice and dedication and and study, mm -hmm. and when I say requires, of course, I mean our faith leads us to do those things. Yes. But people look at it from the outside and say, well, I don't want to have to go to yeah. church. I don't want to have to study the Bible. I don't want to have to, and of course it's not have tos for Christians, it's wants yeah. tos, but, but still, so that makes sense when you think of, of if, if freedom from pain and struggle is the ultimate goal of life, I wonder if those philosophers of the, of your were, were <laughs> to be in our world today, I wonder if they would see that we are closer to that, or if they would perceive that we 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 have the same amount of problems, just different ones. I don't yeah. know. That's that would be interesting. It would because we uh -huh. might not have to all of us go out and and hunt and labor 
for our food, except for those we pay to do those things. Uh, we, most of us just go to the grocery store and those kinds of things. And you think of that as this hedonistic lifestyle where it's free from free from suffering and pain and or at least reduced. But but truthfully, I think we've just switched physical labor, which at the very least had the benefit of increasing our physical health mm-hmm. and replaced it with emotional labor, which doesn't do anybody any good. Yeah. <laughs> One of uh, an author that I, I greatly appreciate, G.K. Chesterton, uh, uh, you're probably oh, familiar yeah. with him. Uh, he had, had such a talent for those uh, uh, good quotations. I uh, said one time, the uh, the Christian faith has not uh, uh, been uh, been found wanting and uh, it has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left oh. untried, uh, which yeah, uh, the Epicureans some... would probably fall in that that position. You know, the, the they look at the Christian faith and would say, well, that's yeah, that that doesn't uh, that doesn't produce tranquility of, uh, you know, free. Uh, not in the sense that they mean like with right. the world. We know certainly the Christian faith does that peace that passes all understanding that that is the result, but it, it hardly produces tranquility within the world. Well, I was going to say, I mean, how many people do we have that are Christians um, or become Christians, I should say, and and they come into the church and they start to think, wait a minute, I, uh, I, I don't, they're made, they're, okay, so how am I trying to say this? People come into the church with these expectations that being a Christian is going to remove all of their yeah. burdens, they're going to be uh, happy and joyful no matter what's happening, <laughs> and and then they find out that not only is it quite difficult because the world opposes us, but there is a, you know, the tentatio <laughs> that we have to yeah. struggle through. Christianity and, is not for wimps. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I forgot who it was. Uh, maybe C.S. Lewis who talked about Christianity not making one. Not don't go to Christianity to make yourself happy. He always found the bottle of port. Yep, that. that's that's Lewis. Yep. Yeah. Uh, now the Stoics are also with us today, and they have a very you know almost the opposite side of the coin. You know, they're the ones who are very much prioritizing the rational thought over the emotional response. Uh, they are all about self sufficiency and personal autonomy as some of the highest goods uh you know in that sense i think they would also appreciate a lot of uh, uh american ideals in terms of uh, that that sort of rugged individualism uh but uh you know the the uh proverb that would sum up the stoics is this too shall pass hmm. something bad is happening to you well this too shall pass if something good is happening to you don't get too excited because well this too shall pass <laughs> Oh, I think I'm more of a stoic than I remember. Yeah, there, there's, uh, <laughs> there, there, there is some crossover there. I can't, uh, can't deny it. But, uh, but yeah, but, but, but they would really see a very prominent role in fate. That right. you're, you, what that happens to you is all part of what is decreed by fate, and you must simply accept what comes to you. Well, whereas we might have comfort knowing that troubles pass because of our trust in Christ, theirs is, well, there's absolutely nothing you can do about it, so don't worry about it. Right. Whereas we might say, yes, there is nothing you can do about it, but you can trust (laughs) that God the Father has your best, you know, has your good in mind. Uh, Our lectionary has just been taking us through Romans. Uh, You know, all things work together for good for those who belong to God in Christ. Uh, so therefore Christians can take that, uh, on the surface might seem like a stoic attitude to all the, the troubles and sufferings of this life, but the basis of it is so very different because it's founded on the ultimate trust in God who is indeed working out all things for good in Christ. Well, tell us a little bit about the Areopagus. What in the world is that, right? (laughs) Well, I think marketplace is uh, perhaps, is that the word that's used here at one point? Yeah, marketplace in verse 17. But uh, uh, it's not just, you know, the place of buying and selling. It is the the marketplace of ideas, you could say. Uh, which, also uh, known as Mars Hill, if uh, yes. people have heard that term. Yeah, I know that uh, that term has uh, uh, become a bit of a, a catchphrase in certain uh, uh, Christian circles. Yes, but, uh, yes. Uh, but it was this um, this uh, place in ancient central Athens where uh, you know the Athenian people would gather together. It was uh, uh, 
something of an outdoor assembly hall. Uh, yeah. So it is the, the uh, you know, a, a very you know public social space for uh, yeah. for the people. Yeah, it was fairly close to the Acropolis and mm-hmm. the Roman Forum, so it's it was natural that people would gather there and probably sell things and exchange things in addition to ideas. I, you know, here's how I think of it, um, and I'm sure I'm completely off base, but um, <laughs> here in my little town of Laverne, right up the road a couple blocks, there is a gas station, Sunshine Gas Station. And it pretty much doesn't matter what time of day you go there, but especially in the mornings, um, the place is bustling with, uh, let's just say, the more seasoned gentlemen of the community. (laughs) There's a bunch of old fellers that always uh, gather around there at the tables there, and they all buy like one little cup of coffee, and they spend hours (laughs) sitting there just talking about stuff and and griping about the government and griping about this and and telling stories and um <laughs> I, I i get in a very uh in a very distant kind of way I, I i get the same idea it's like these are where the philosophers would head um to go and find other people to talk with yeah. about things absolutely yeah and, oh and do do the Athenians not sound like us today? They would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Uh, I mean, if you if you take that out of the you know the uh, uh, the marketplace kind of view, I mean, ever present smartphones, uh, the mm-hmm. endless scrolling on social media, twenty four hour news networks. Uh, uh, I, I I feel like we certainly spend nothing, <laughs> spend our time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Well, Something that, goes viral. Yeah, and that's so true. We all, we always are fascinated with the novelty of things um, and, and less rooted in, um, I guess, I don't know, uh, the word I'm looking for is escaping me, but I guess more mm-hmm. historic things. I guess a way I can compare it is to books. So in a book, generally, the most valuable book is the first edition, the oldest. Um, and yet we're people who want the latest and the greatest. Yes. And, uh, and the same thing goes with even teaching scriptures. Like when we look to the scriptures for guidance, we know that the Bible is error-free according to the original autographs. And mm-hmm. what we have are not the original autographs. Uh, not to put anybody have doubt, of course, in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. It's well attested to. But we're trying our best to find the oldest because we want it mm-hmm. to be closest to the original. But our culture isn't interested in that in a general way. It's interested in the latest, the newest. And so churches, congregations, who worship according to traditions of old are sometimes looked down upon by those congregations who are eagerly trying new things every week to attract people, mm-hmm. uh, if I can bring in the worshipers in the <laughs> conversation. But yeah, I mean, Luther in his preface to the small catechism, or sorry, to preface to the large catechism, uh, uh, he he says, you know, uh, some people out there think they have uh, gone beyond uh, these basic topics. And I'm here to tell you that you never get beyond the basic topics. You know, we're always back to basics. And, you know, when he when he talks about going back to the catechism there, you know, he doesn't mean his own writing. He means mm-hmm. the actual fundamentals of it. Go back to the Ten Commandments. Go back to the Creed. Go back to the Lord's Prayer that, you know, you you will never get beyond this you know you're there is no newer and greater if you know, if you can't uh, uh uh stay rooted in uh in these fundamentals well are we ready to go on to what paul says to the people at the areopagus oh ready as we're ever gonna be all right here we go verse 22 and i'm gonna read through the end of the chapter so paul standing in the midst of the areopagus said Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul <laughs> went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom are also uh, Dionysius, uh, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And that's the end of our text for this morning. <laughs> so uh, the first thing that stood out to me, brother, is that men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Yes. <laughs> um, and they are, right? And, and you know what? Our culture today, extremely religious. Extremely religious, yes. Yep. I've uh, recently been having discussions about that in our adult Bible class here, about like what are the sorts of uh, uh, gods that are, are worshipped around us today. And uh, they are, you know, they're, they're, there are many of them. And uh, we have to keep in mind that religion does not necessarily mean Christian faith. <laughs> right. Right. But I will argue, too, that the Christian faith is also a religion. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because I don't know if it's as prominent now, but there was a little trend for a while about how, you know, Jesus is greater than religion. And Christian. when we say religious, we mean a dedication to something or someone as God, yeah. um, um, as paramount in their life. And so the true religion is, and the Bible says true religion is what? Serving widows and orphans. Well, mm -hmm. true religion, Christianity, is about serving God by serving others. Mm -hmm. And the religion of, say, our day is very much serving oneself by um, casting aside yeah. the will of God, by, by making your God into—I could obviously list things, but whatever cause or, or whatever— um, whatever thing you put your faith, hope, and trust in. And for these guys, you know, I think their religion, I don't know that they would have been necessarily dedicated to the even the pantheon of Roman gods. I'd, I'd say that they were very much religious in the sense that they always want, well, it's said, they always want something new. Yep. <laughs> yes, yeah, the, the idol of self is uh, the most uh, popular and the most hard to, uh, the hardest to get away from, isn't it? You know, what I think is interesting, though, is let's put Paul. Um, well, I don't know how we, if we should transport our church back to the time of Paul or bring Paul here. But in any case, um, I don't. When he goes and he, he sees this object of their worship, it's an altar that says to the unknown God. And I do want to hear what you have to say mm -hmm. about why they have this such an altar. But I'm just thinking offhand. He then takes that as a, an object lesson and says, "I'll tell you. You don't know who it is. I'll tell you who it is." I feel like today, if a pastor were to do such a thing, use such a rhetorical device, they'd be accused of some sort of blasphemy because they're associating the true God <laughs> with some unknown yeah. idol God. Yeah. Um, I, I just can't help but think that Paul, in many ways, is meeting the people where they are. Because if he began with, all of your gods are nonsense and here's the truth, yeah. they wouldn't have listened to him. Yeah. And I mean, this is simply a record of what Paul said. And uh, uh, I, in that sense, I don't know that it is being particularly commended to us as no. the right way to pursue this conversation. Simply, this is how Paul did it at this point. So I think I think we would be free to uh, what uh, uh, as, as, as uh, daunting as the thought is uh, critique Paul's serpent. But uh... <laughs> well, I, well, and I but I do think, too, that um, there's there's part of this be this approach that Paul takes that mm -hmm. is or I should say is, but because it's it's descriptive, not prescriptive, but it can be commended to us in this way. Um, just like Jesus didn't go around correcting everyone's false theology, yeah. he just pointed them to himself, and then, of course, that correction would come in time. He goes to these people, and he doesn't destroy the reputation off the get-go. Mm -hmm. He starts with where they are at. With the Jews, of course, he can start with the truth of the Scriptures, but they don't believe in those Scriptures. So he starts with what, I was going to say with what they know, but technically in this case, he starts with what they don't know. And that is, they have this understanding that while there are a bunch of gods, 
there are probably some they don't even know about. Isn't that sort of the point of them having a, a this unknown is, god? This is a cover your bases uh, thing here because they, you know, again, this pagan religion is all about uh, uh, I give to you so that you will give to me. This uh, tit for tat. Uh, you know, you placate the gods so that they will give you good things and refrain from doing bad things to you. So suppose there's a god that you somehow overlooked. Well, we're going to cover that base too. Um, and well, I don't want to shortchange our section here, but yeah. we are getting close to the end. So I'm just going to kind of let you run with it and and take us through what we need to know. All right. Well, one one way that I, uh, I see this around us today, this unknown god... You look at the statistics, a good number of Americans, 75%, something like that, uh, will still say they believe in God. But then you actually start to dig down and see what kind of God do they believe in? You know, you, you bring up questions about the divinity of Christ or, uh, you know, the uh, uh, for salvation by faith alone versus works. And, you know, those sorts of, of to us, fairly basic uh, creedal level questions. And you, you start to see that, you know, uh, huge chunk of these 75% who believe in God, it is not the God, it is not the faith that is laid out for us in scripture. I mean, if you take, you know, the, the creed as the baseline of who is a Christian, uh, it's it drops at least in half. I would say like 30% versus 75%. So who, all these people believe in a God. Okay, well, let us do like Paul. We will tell you about this God that you believe in, we will tell you what he has actually said to you about who he is. Uh, Luther uh, makes this wonderful distinction of the hidden God versus the revealed God that uh, you can tell, as Paul says also, you can come to the conclusion that there is a God just simply from human reason, from looking at the world, but that doesn't tell you about Christ, that you struggle with who God is and how he is disposed to you and what's going on in the world. And Luther says, just step away from that question. Don't look at the hidden God, look at the revealed God. This is that theology of the cross. That is the way that you understand who God really is, how he, you know, what he really wants for you, how he is really disposed to you. This uh, focus on the cross, you know, know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Um, so this, uh, uh, that, that, that is what it's all about. You know, that's what it's all about for Paul. You know, yes, you believe in God or a, a God, many gods, but let's, let's tell you not about what you have, what you think you've discerned about God, but let's tell you about what God has actually spoken and is telling to you. In verse 29, he, he points out that, uh, you know, the one true God, us being his offspring, means that the divine is not like all the things that the idols are made from. You know, I do believe, I think I think it's important that people know that, that when they made these idols, it's not as though they thought that the physical objects they made were gods. Uh, they saw them as sort of uh, representations of their gods or places where their gods could inhabit or sit upon as a throne, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, he's pointing out the obvious issue with, worshiping, paying homage to things made by human hands. You know, mm -hmm. God wouldn't—the <laughs> true God isn't going to be made by human hands. Mm -hmm. it, it would be like us worshiping a crucifix as opposed to a crucifix pointing to God. And I, I, I think we can extrapolate a little more from this, that the things made by human hands is, is a, a, the, the phrase you use, which is a, a great way to put it, that it isn't just about those physical idols of gold or silver or stone, but— uh, uh, you know, as we started back in Thessalonica, uh, they are turning the world upside down. The, the world of of the Greek, uh, Greco-Roman civilization, worldly civilization, all these things that are built by our hands, all these, uh, uh, the ways of the world, uh, that that is not where God is found. God is found on a cross. God is found in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who... Uh, is is uh, offers himself as the sacrifice for sin, and in him only is there meaning and eternal life. Well, you know what? I think that's where we're going to have to leave it. I know that there was some more, but and it was a great conversation. But uh, I think that's a great place for us to to stop. Uh, 
Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. Folks, this was Thank our you. guest, uh, the Reverend Derek Waffle. He's the pastor of Christ Lutheran Church in Pascagoula, Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Phil. Uh, friends, tomorrow we tackle the first half of chapter 18, and we accompany the Apostle Paul on the next leg of his transformative journey as he forges connections in Corinth and Ephesus. In the bustling streets of Corinth, Paul finds camaraderie with tent makers Priscilla and Aquila, and together they kindle a new faith community. While the gospel message flourishes, challenges do arise, though, prompting divine reassurance for Paul in the depths of the night. We're going to talk about that and what goes on in Ephesus, too, but you'll have to tune in tomorrow to hear it. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.